And a big welcome back to the Endurance Hour podcast. Back alongside Kona coach Wendy Bader, Dave Erickson here. 400. This marks the 400th episode of the Endurance Hour podcast. It's just a number, but it is um, kind of a, a reminder of how long we've been here and that we're still going. So thank you for listening and being on this ride that started in January of 2012. Lots of questions today. Going to get right to them to help support your endurance journey. This from Selma. I'm doing the 70.3 World Championship in Finland in August. I will be doing Ironman California in October. Can the training be synced or aligned with these two races? Uh, your reply will be much appreciated. I'm planning to get the 16-week training plan for the full Ironman and currently training for the 70.3. This is from Selma, and she got our plan um, off Training Peaks. Go ahead, Coach. Hey, Selma, this is a great question. I'm sure others have similar questions. So I'm really happy that you decided to purchase the Ironman plan and incorporate the 70.3 within the plan, but your focus is on Ironman because that's a little bit different than just training for the 70.3. And within a 16-week period, you don't really have time to train for a 70.3 following that training plan and then jumping into an Ironman plan with only about eight weeks to go. So um, that's great. And I looked at your plan and I, I noticed on August 26th, when you're scheduled to go to Finland, we have a four hour ride, maybe a 45 minute run brick scheduled that weekend. So what I would encourage you to do is um, take that week leading up to your race, modify it. So you're giving your body some recovery And instead of doing the training for that weekend, you do the race and then modify the following week. So you recover from Finland and traveling. And, you know, there's a lot involved when you're going to an Ironman 70.3 World Championship event. And then the week after Finland, if you're recovered, you'll be ready to just kind of jump right back into the plan. So it's better to get the full and then build in some of that 70.3 training within the plan versus having to try to do some sort of hop into a full Ironman after just specifically 70.3 training. Yeah, especially because I don't know the exact amount of time, but there's only about maybe two months or eight, you know, roughly eight weeks. And um, it could be done, but it's just easier to just follow the plan for the second race of the season and incorporate the shorter races. So within that plan, we do incorporate it's suggested weekends of racing. And we do follow like a protocol of a little bit recovery before and after those suggested races, but life isn't perfect and not everyone's going to be able to find an event on that exact uh, um, moment within their training plan. So it was a really good question. I'm, I, hopefully she'll um, understand what I'm trying to tell her. And if not, I can help her modify if needed. This question from Lauren, I'm following your couch to Olympic training plan. So far, I'm enjoying the training, the coaching videos from you and Dave. So much great advice. I'm ready to graduate from flat pedals to clipless pedals on my bike. Do you have any suggestions on what type of pedals and shoes to get? What should I expect with this type of change? Any tips are appreciated. Um, again, another great question, especially, you know, makes me go back to the days when I first started riding a mountain bike and 
just a flat pedal and my running shoes. It's a, it makes for an easy transition. So if you are going to change your shoes and pedals, I recommend also getting a bike fit. Anytime you change something, you want to make sure you readjust your bike so it fits you. And the bike fitter can help you adjust the cleat that's on the bottom of your shoe and kind of help you um, with, you know, kind of teach you a little bit on the spot as your bike is stationary on a trainer, helping you um, clip in and clip out. And so what kind of do I recommend? I mean, when I started back in the day, I had look pedals. I graduated to, um, I can't remember speed the names, but, but they were speed play. Yeah, the circle ones. Speed yes. play has a lot more what's called float. So you have a lot more, um, you know, your, your, your heels moving a lot more. And then I found Shimano pedals and I've used Shimano pedals for probably the most of the, my pedal choice on a tri bike. They seem to go well with, you know, my ankles and calves. Those are usually areas of my body that I've, I've stressed in the past and have been injured in the past. And it could have been because a speed play had a little bit too much play in them. So I like the Shimano pedals and cleats just fine. Again, your your bike fitter can maybe recommend some based on your specific um, maybe muscular skeletal issues if you have any. Yeah, definitely the the trying it before you actually try it out on a race uh, because every shoe is different. They're going to feel different around your foot. Uh, some say that the smaller and tighter shoes work better for triathletes, while others like the wider, more breathable shoes. What I remember doing is making sure I found a shoe that had uh, I want to say ventilation, but also uh, a way to escape any uh, moisture. So if you pour water on your shoe uh, or you, or you get sweat or something that goes down and you don't want it pooling up, if it can drain somehow or make it more breathable, um, some sort of air conditioning vents, that'll help out. Because if you just have wet feet, because it's a hot day, for example, you pour water, it goes down and it sits. You're going to have some, you know, those, um, prune prune feet you know you're it's not going to be good and fun when you go out on the run part of the bike and there's also the velcro issue what can you how is it going to be strapped onto your foot do you want something that can slip in with a nice uh something for your finger your index finger so you can uh hold it easier a string or a strap just some little things that you know you learn along the way of like what makes it easier to get in and out of those shoes uh the color sometimes you know white or black Depends on, you know, how hot your foot may get. I know there's a lot of different things uh, to consider, not just, you know, how it's going to sit. But one of our follow-up questions, unless you unless you have a follow-up on that one, is um, what kind of change should you expect from going flat to clipless pedals? Well, I do, before I forget, chances are high that you might fall. So you just might, if you're not used to clipping in and clipping out, you may forget that you're clipped in. And if you're you get to your first stop sign or stop light or, or a place that you have to stop, just be conscious that in order to, you know, your foot to touch the ground, you need to unclip. It's mm -hmm. normal if you fall. I just want to throw that out there so it's on your mind. Um, but definitely when you go from flap pedal to being clipped in, you're going to engage more muscles. So you're going to feel your engagement of your hamstrings when you're pulling back and then kind of pulling up over the top. So you're going to work more muscles uh, um, in the pedal stroke and in turn that should make you go faster is it going to be a more efficient stroke as well because you're going to mm -hmm. be able to generate power going down and coming up uh, on both angles uh, as far as like uh, clipping out uh, plan ahead 
you know, yeah, come to a stop ahead. sign, um, light post, whatever it may be, plan ahead. Well, there's 20 feet, whatever it is, pull that foot out first and then let it dangle or something before yes. you put it on the ground. And eventually, uh, this is for, for Lauren, eventually you'll practice getting out of your, getting your foot out of your shoe, putting it on top of the pedal as you're coming in a transition on both of those, if you prefer, or if you try to do that, it depends on how fast and how comfortable you are taking your feet out. And I would do that, I don't know, a quarter mile before transmission, uh, transition, just to get it out of my foot out of there while you're spinning your legs. Uh, that's a way for people to get out quickly. And then you just run with the shoes still on your bike again, trial and error. Yeah. Just takes a lot of practice. This question from John, I just purchased your couch to marathon training plan and want to know your thoughts on running on trails for a road marathon. How does that trail running uh, translate into marathon running on the road or does it? Well, I think when I think of trail running, most of the time, I think there's going to be some elevation gain and loss when you're running trails. It just depends on the location you live in. And so the first thing that comes to mind is you're going to get a lot more strength and endurance by running on the trail as well as technique. And, you know, trail running usually involves, well, you're going to feel more stabilization in your feet working to, depending on, again, the gravel, rocks, what kind of terrain you're running on. So specific to the, his program, I, I recall it's a 30 week marathon program. I would, I say the first half of it, I think is fine as you're developing your aerobic engine, which involves endurance and strength and technique, run as much as you can on the trails, trail running a softer surface. So it's going to save your legs. And because you are going to be running a road race, I think it's important as you get into that sport specificity to incorporate some longer runs on the road, the type of terrain that you're going to be racing on. I think that's important to get your body acclimated to that type of surface and that type of speed because trail running, even like a flatter, um, less technical trail, you just just slow down. Your pace is slower. And so you may want to run a little bit more by time when you're doing the trail running. And then when you get to the road, again, during that race specificity, when you're focused more on a certain speed, effort, or pace, um, that's going to change when you're on the road. This question from Scott, and I'll try to abbreviate some of it. He says, during a race, when I'm getting the water bottles at the rest stops, I know that experienced riders kind of put their hand out and grab them as they go by still riding, but I'm not likely wanting to go risk that. Uh, doesn't want to cause any accidents with volunteers, riders, and so on. So he says, do I simply ride to the end of the stop, get off my bike, walk back and get a bottle, as I assume stopping in front would cause other rider issues? Just curious what you see other beginners do at um, aid stations. Yes. So great question. First, I'd say, number one, practice. You can, you know, if you can practice in your neighborhood, maybe your spouse or children or someone can, you can practice going by your house and them handing you water bottles and just getting comfortable taking your water bottle out of the cage, whether it's in, in back, in the middle or in front, tossing it and grabbing one. I've never seen anyone do what you described, whereas they are going to ride through the aid station, pull off to the right-hand side, get off their bike, walk to the volunteer and visualizing this, ask for a water bottle, walk back to the bike, put it in 
and then take off. There is danger in that as well because you're going, all these riders are passing at a certain speed and here you are on the side of the road waiting for your chance to get back on the racing scene and you're going from zero to, you know, a slow acceleration on the road, which could also cause an accident because really I've never seen anyone do that. So I don't think you should be as worried as you may be right now going into your race and like I said, that practice in your neighborhood, maybe, maybe you can, you know, do, you know, a, a little mini triathlon before your bigger race just to, or, or to go to an event and watch it. So you can have more of an idea of what it's like when riders are going through those aid stations. Most of us, I know myself, I do slow down. Um, I do make sure I I'm slow enough. I'm visualizing the the volunteer holding that out. I'm visualizing like how hard I want to grab that bottle, not to risk pulling on anyone's arm if, you know, and they got to let go too. And these volunteers I've heard practice, you know, that how they let go of the bottle when they're handing it off. So again, I don't think you should be as stressed out about it as you may be. And it's not as difficult as it may, you may be thinking it is right now. I don't know, Dave, what are your thoughts? Well, yeah, especially as a beginner or, he's, you know, he's curious what to see other beginners, what you see other beginners do. You're not going to be going so fast to where it's going to be an issue. Uh, if anything, when you approach that A station, uh, make eye contact. And you may wear, be wearing sunglasses. Put your hand up, you know, point to that person that you're yeah. going to be getting the, for like, oh, I would recognize that. I want from you, you know, start pointing at them, hand up. Yeah. I'll take it from you and then open your hand as if you're ready to receive the bottle. Mm -hmm. They'll jog alongside with you a little bit if they can, if it's safe. And that way that transition won't be so abrupt in your hand. And even if you slowed it, it's not going to make a difference in the, in the race, in the big picture, if slowing down while still rolling through the transition. And that's what these aid station volunteers are doing and are trained for that station they are prepared they're not going to get in your way uh they're going to make sure that everyone is safe and it may be congested at the early part of the transition so just wait for the next opening and once you put your hand up they will in a way come to you um and some of these a stations there's multiple tables it's going to be repeated so let's say it's water gatorade bananas whatever else it'll happen again in right. the next, right in the same aid station. So if you miss the first one, then the second one will be there. And people will stagger their choices on, oh, all right, this aid station, I'm going to go from the first. The station, I'm going to go to the second, based on how crowded it is. And for you and me, let's ask, and share some things here. I try to get two. Sometimes I make sure I, I drop my old bottle prior to in the trash area, the drop zone, grab one, put it on the bike immediately, grab the second one, douse myself, drink, or put it in the bottle in the cage again, and then continue going on. Or maybe the first one is the one I use to douse myself, to cool myself off, drop it again right there during the trans the aid station area, grab one more, and then continue about my way. The second one is one I'll keep, but you could get the first one and keep that one because you want to have it on you no matter what. You don't want to go out and drop the second one and now you're out without fluids. So maybe that first one you put on your body, in your kit, on your bike, whatever. That way you secure hydration into the next 10-mile aid station. What do you say, Coach? Right. I, and, you know, I do a similar thing. Um, and I, I, the only anxiety that I probably had when I first started was 
riding over a water bottle or riding yeah. over a water bottle cap. And they don't, it doesn't really happen like that anymore. But back in the day, those, those aid stations could be cluttered with empty water bottles and, and just, you know, sometimes people drop one, they don't intend to, or the volunteer drops one, they don't intend right. to. So you yeah. just want to be careful of that scenario. And then make sure you look at the race guide and find out how often are the aid stations generally in like the longer races, 70.3, 140.6 or about every 10 miles. So if you happen to miss out on getting fluid, just know it's going to be about 10 more miles until you can get it again. And maybe in 10 more miles, because you're, you may be empty, that may be the time to say, okay, to guarantee I need a bottle. I may stop if the, if the first one wasn't successful. And I don't think this is really going to take too much time in the big picture of the bike portion of the, of the, of the race. I mean, if you, you're really not going to lose time. I mean, you may think you're slowing down and losing, you know, to the person ahead of you, who care? It's even 30 seconds. Stopping and and getting one is going to slow you down more than anything. Yeah. You can just just roll through it very slowly. You haven't stopped moving forward. Just get it, get it on you and just keep on just t- t- you're just taking a break, but you're you're cruising, you're going through. That's why when people um, one of the time ways to be t- efficient in, t- in transition is to carry some things out with you versus stop and put your hat on, stop and put your race number on, right. stop and open a gel. Run with those things. Mm-hmm. Keep the motion going forward because that's what your goal is to get to the finish line as quickly as possible. Why stop at an A station? The clock is ticking. Unless you don't care about time. The clock is ticking. Roll through it. Any movement forward is progressing toward your finish line. Exactly. Here's a question uh, about longer weekend workouts. Uh, this writer says, this person says, I will try to do my outdoor bike rides on Fridays to avoid some of the weekend traffic and other riders. Uh, if I move Saturday's workout to Friday, do I move my Sunday long run to Saturday so it's done on fatigued legs or is it my choice to do the run on Saturday or Sunday? Yeah, and this specific person is following um, the 70.3 plan. And so most of our plans, if not all of them, have typically a bike scheduled, maybe a transition run on Saturday and then the, the what's called the long run on Sunday. And yeah, sure, the theory behind that is so you do your long run on more fatigued legs to simulate what more it's going to feel like on race day. And ultimately, the best plan is one that fits into your training schedule. So if you do like a long ride on Friday and take an easier day Saturday and continue with that scheduled long run on Sunday, that's still going to benefit you. Um, The adaptation is still going to occur. And sometimes it's even good to run your long run on fresher legs um, just for more confidence, more pacing, especially this time of year when it's really hot. Um, the heat can be really draining in itself. Even if you do a long run after a rest day, you could still be pretty drained because of the heat. And so, you know, it's just whatever works best in your schedule is what I recommend. Good call. Yeah, I think I agree too about uh, keeping those as close as possible. Just bounce back everything one day. Uh, I like the idea of like, you know, thinking ahead, it's going to be busy on the weekends. More people are on the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't. I'm not. I wouldn't be too concerned about other riders out there on the road. Um, but it's just the more traffic on Saturday and Sunday, and you can always find a, 
a better place to run versus, you know, a safer place to ride on Saturdays right. versus Fridays. So I think it's a smart idea. Uh, this question about socks. Are you a sock person or a barefoot person? Let's talk about both options here, both on the bike and on the run, Coach. Well, this is a question I posted in the T2 Endurance Facebook group, and this is something we got like maybe close to 15 responses. Mm. Um, so it's pretty pretty hot topic in our group. Um, me personally, if it's a sprint or an Olympic, I can go sockless. I'm fine either way. I usually will always have socks available just in case I want to take that few extra seconds to try to put socks on. But I'm in a sprint, no. Olympic, probably not, but I might. And when I do put this, if I do decide I do want to wear the socks, I'm going to put them on before I get on the bike, which makes for a quicker transition going into the run. I won't wait. If, if I don't put them on on the bike, they're not going to be put on during the race. Mm. For a half and a full distance, I will wear socks. Again, I'll put them on on the bike and have them for the run. Now, for a full, because, you know, you've put a lot of investment into that race uh, leading up to it, uh, what about a, a sock switch, new fresh socks for the run? I've never done that before. I've never really? even thought I've never even thought about it, ever. Hmm. I would do that. I, I, I kind of roll the socks up, put them into the, the opening of my shoes, uh-huh. maybe some baby powder or something in there to keep them, you know, for that dry effect so I can put my foot in there. Uh-huh. And then I have a fresh, because maybe it's a mental uh boost like oh okay i'm looking for some fresh socks yeah but i don't think i usually wear socks on the bike because uh, the feet are wet from uh-huh. the swim and then it's just one more thing i have to dry my feet off to get them into socks and then into the shoes plus if i'm running at a transition and my shoes aren't on they're on the bike just kind of uh-huh. hanging on the bike then i'm running through probably grass or dirt or whatever else mm-hmm. and that's going to throw off the wet the socks they're going to be wet dirty whatever they're not going to be comfortable so I'll just probably just I just go without socks on the bike. Interesting. And and then I can also you know rinse them off or keep them cool. Uh, you know I talked about before about the pooling effect and your your your, fo- your feet get all like webby you know like yeah, a duck's yeah. feet. Well, the socks would make that worse because right. if the socks are wet, your foot's could just kind of be soaking, and that's not good for comfort afterwards. Here's some feedback from a new, she writes a race report in our T2 Endurance Facebook group, which is a great way to share your experience. Other people can uh, chime in as well. It's a private group. You just do a request and I'll let you in. It's a little over 700 people in this uh, Facebook group. Wendy, thank you so much. Currently enjoying some well-deserved R&R and then deciding on the plans for the next triathlon and trail running adventures. Uh, thank you and Dave for all the great tips and advice in the Endurance Hour podcast the group, YouTube channel, and so on, especially the swim tips have been great help in preparation. So very grateful for your insights. Uh, a news, uh, I think she's a, uh, a longtime follower of the show, isn't she? She is. She's the hangry triathlete on Instagram. Ah, okay. Yeah. And she's pretty vocal. Um, she, she participates a lot in our group and, you know, all the tips, you know, I share a lot of swimming tips from the YouTube channel. I'll incorporate some into our newsletter that I send out on Fridays. And mm-hmm. then as well as sharing tips um, in our T2 Endurance Facebook group. So thank you for your feedback. Here's some other feedback actually on the YouTube channel. This is uh, under a video we produced. How do you reduce drag? Uh, some swimming tips here. It says here, thanks, Wendy. Your coaching tips seem to fit my experience level well. I haven't done downhill swimming yet, which you can explain, but it, it, but it 
but if that helps give me better balance, I will use that technique. I swim without kicks, but end up doing a little two-beat flutter kick to quickly regain my balance. Recently, focusing on correcting asymmetrical strokes, started extending right arm further and rotating a little bit more, enabled me to bilaterally breathe much easier. I like your drill tips on using correct muscles, glutes, and quads, creating that feel to know what the motion is correct. Again, this is how to reduce drag. Uh, this is the, the the person who wrote this. His name is Lee. So that's some good feedback there. Oh, what is you, uh, the downhill swimming reference? So when you have achieved balance in the water, your the top of your head, your hips, and your ankles should be on the surface of the water. And you should feel like you're swimming downhill. So your body is going to feel like it's it's in this type of position your 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 chin slightly tucked the weight of your body's on your sternum that sometimes alone will help bring those that lower body up to the surface me as a swimmer i've never learned that way do i feel like i'm swimming downhill no but i do have that balance of head hips and and heels out of the water and so that's just a good visual to feel um yeah to work on drag. And if you're a swimmer, I like to say, if you're a two minute per hundred or slower paced swimmer, you're probably struggling because you have lower body drag and improper kick. You're not kicking from the quads and hip flexors. So you wanna make sure you address that before you start to increase your propulsion with your underwater catch and pull. That's one of the, a, a term they used in actually in, in football. I remember this in high school, they'd say run downhill as if you're running back or something, when you're going through the line, after you get the ball, act as though you're running downhill. So all the weight is forward and you always want to land forward. So that momentum mm -hmm. and that tilt is a forward lean. Mm -hmm. uh, similar, they say, you know, in running where you have a, a lean forward, like you're going to fall, but your foot catches every step in front of you. So there's a, a forward right. lean as well. Yeah. Usually in, a, in running, when you have a forward lean from your hips or no, from your ankle, you're kind of leaning from your ankles that brings you up more on your midfoot and if you if you start your run where you're falling your feet are going to accelerate and up, prevent you from falling but usually you know I've, I've read some things in the day back in the day where a forward lean is like your accelerator it's free speed so mm -hmm. when you try to go faster try to lean forward and that'll help your leg speed and increase your running speed without putting in the muscular effort to do so. Well, we covered some questions today. Hope they were helpful for you. A little bit of feedback. Um, and that's going to conclude this episode. They're about a half hour long, most of these. So if you have some questions you want to submit for the next coming uh, podcast, do so on any of our platforms. Endurance Hour is the way to go. What email addresses can they send to you, Wendy, for these questions? Um, I can be reached at wendy at t2coaching.com as well as t2coachwendy at gmail.com. Very good. And of course, Endurance Hour on Facebook, Instagram, and clearly on YouTube. So there you go. I know it's just a number, but it's kind of a cool number, 400 episodes. Alongside Coach Wendy, thanks for listening. Have a great week of training, racing, or recovery. We'll see you next time. Adios. Adios. Mm -hmm.